Take your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 1. As we turn over there, I want to say welcome to our guests that are here today. Um, and some of you uh, are returning guests and some of you are first-time guests. Whatever the case is, uh, we are so glad you're with us today. And I would highly encourage you to take advantage of the gift card that is available at our bookstore. It's just a way of saying thank you for uh, being in our church today. There's no obligation, no commitment to that. Just a way of saying thank you. And uh, it, 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 if this is your first time, obviously the, there's been a lot of things changed over the last several months. Uh, given COVID-19, and we have our, our church has kind of had to uh, morph, so to speak, so that we can accommodate everybody in the way that they're all handling uh, this virus. Uh, certainly, in a normal time, in a normal season, we would not have on the screens, please stay away from people. Um, so our church is actually a very friendly and accommodating church. They want to shake your hand and and want to get to know you a little bit better, but obviously, because of this time, uh, we're unable to do that. So, uh, it, it, please don't get an idea that our church is just unfriendly. We're trying to be accommodating to everyone in their circumstances with the coronavirus. And so, we, we're so glad you're here today. If you have any questions or need anything from us, I'll be right up here after the service. You can come right up here, and I'll, I'd love to meet you, love to talk to you just a little while. And then I do want to mention before we get going with the message today, would you please join me in prayer over the next several days for the Charlie and Amanda Heath family. They just left, um, I guess it was Thursday, to head to North Carolina. One of Amanda's best friends was uh, growing up, was being married. Amanda was, I believe, the maid, matron of honor, I think is how that goes. I don't know. I'm not very good at that wedding stuff. Um, but uh, anyway... They went up there, they got the folks hitched yesterday, and then this this morning, uh, her, her grandfather had fallen very ill over the last several days, and just this morning, uh, he, he passed away. And so, um, the Lord arranged the circumstances for them to be up there during this time, that Miss Amanda can be with her family, and this is a hard time for them, but just be in prayer for them and their family as they have to handle all that goes along with that. And so... I'd appreciate if you would do that with me this week. Galatians chapter number 1 this morning. We'll just read a few verses and then we will try to draw a thought from Scripture this morning. The Bible says, Paul, in verse number 1, an apostle not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse number 4 will be the primary focus of our text this morning and the message. Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. The key thought that we will draw from today is this, that He might deliver us. That He might deliver us. Now there's been a lot of famous deliveries throughout history, but one that is not very well known of is there was some cargo on the Titanic that most people are not aware of. In fact, in 1912, when the Titanic set sail... 
and left Ireland to come to New York, uh, in the cargo hold was about 12,000 containers of mayonnaise. You see, at the time, Hemelman's was made in England, and they were coming over and bringing them to Actually, the next port of call for the Titanic was not only New York, but the next port of call would have been Veracruz, Mexico. And so the, uh, the idea was that they would be able to deliver all of these containers to Mexico. As you know, the Titanic did not make it uh, all the way through the journey. Uh, so therefore, the delivery of the, the mayonnaise was lost at sea. And this really affected the citizens in Mexico that, uh, that were expecting to receive this shipment. In fact, it so affected the country that they decided to make a national day of mourning. Many of you have probably heard of it. They established a holiday. It is that of Cinco de Mayo. I've got one preacher just with his head down and the other one shaking it saying, No, Brother Andrew, how do you start off with a message here? See, this is my strategy, guys. I start low and can only go up from here. Uh, don't mean that to be insulting or uh, to insult your intelligence. I'm not sure the, uh, the actual truthfulness behind that story. CNN can fact check me later if they would like. But nonetheless... There have been many famous deliveries throughout history, uh, and there has been no greater delivery than that which the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He saved us and brought us out of this world, and He's called us to a greater purpose in living for Him. There is no greater delivery in all of history than that. But you see, when I get those little notifications on my phone that says, your package has been delivered... That to me says, the wait is now over. That to me says, okay, I I purchased an item and and now I can get home and I can go to the package on my front doorstep or by my gate or by my mailbox or in the weeds somewhere, wherever the postman decides to set it that particular day. And I can get that package and I can sit in my chair and I can open the package I've been so excited to receive. But when the delivery is done, it seems like the whole work is done. But I don't know about you, friend. I don't feel all that delivered right now. I turn on the TV and everything is just wicked and vile. I mean, you turn on the TV and they have to put fluff pieces in of dogs on surfboards and dogs on skateboards and babies making a cute face just because they can't give us nothing but bad news. Why is that? Friend, I don't feel very delivered right now. But the Bible says in verse number 4 that the whole purpose for Jesus' death on the cross, verse number 4, who gave Himself for our sins that He might deliver us from this present evil world. And I was interested in knowing what that word deliver here meant. That word means to pluck out. And, and there's really two connotations that this word is used. Number one, it is used to, uh, to choose out, as if uh, an entire basket of apples was in front of you and you were to pluck out or select the one that you wanted. That is one way that this word is used. But the second word is this. 
And I believe it's the context in which our passage uses it this morning. It is to rescue and to deliver. You see, Christ came to rescue you so that He might deliver you. I think with all my heart that God always delivers us from something to deliver us to something better. And the children of Israel came out of Egypt, but God's plan was not only to deliver them from the oppression that was Egypt, but to deliver them into a place that was called the promised land. A land that flows with milk and honey, one of bounty and one of plenty. God never pulls us out of something to not place us into something better. He's delivering us. But I believe there's much controversy that, that surrounds this topic of delivery. And what God has delivered us from and what God has delivered us to. So this morning I want to take a look at two misconceptions and two meanings of what this is. Of what this word delivery is. Number one, here's the first misconception this morning. The first misconception is that God has delivered us from the presence of evil. Wouldn't it be great if when we trusted Christ as our Savior, I mean, uh, whether it was by your bedside or here at the altar or maybe in the children's church, wouldn't it be great if at that very moment we bowed our head, confessed our sins, asked Him to come into our soul to save us, wouldn't it be great if He just took us to heaven right at that moment? I mean, we could, wouldn't it be awesome if we didn't have to deal with the struggles and sins and the sorrows of this life? But that is not the reality. In fact, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible says that once you got saved, Jesus prayed that He might send you back into the world. In fact, John chapter 17, verse 15, Jesus prayed for His disciples. And He said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. It is not God's will that you would be removed from the world entirely. I believe it's God's will that you be separate in this world. I believe it's God's will that you'd be distinct in this world. But God's will is not that you'd be entirely isolated in this world. Because He says, uh, I pray that you should not take them out, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. Sometimes I wonder if we could just make like a little biodome full of Christianity. Uh, we're, all, we're all Christians that were like-minded and focusing on the same goals and focusing on the same hopes and aspirations that they're trying to please God and live for God. Wouldn't it be just kind of a, a dream world if we were able to put up a biodome full of Christians that were all trying to pursue that goal and put everything of the world and everything that was evil on the outside of that dome? Truth is, I don't think we'd get along very well in that biodome, frankly. That's not God's plan for the Christian. God says, I've saved you and sent you back in to the world. In fact, Jesus' model prayer was this in Matthew chapter 6. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So the Christian gets saved. You're still going to have to live amongst evil. You're still going to have to deal with it. When you go to the mall, you're still going to see it. When you turn on your television, it's still going to be available to you. You are going to live amongst evil. But there are those that believe that that we might be somehow removed from the entire presence of evil. But here's the question. Why would Jesus save us 
and, and spare us from evil and, and, and try to change our mindsets, change our appetites, change our desires. All things are become new. All things are passed away. We're new creatures in Christ. Why would He save us just to send us right back to where we came from? My dad, the other day, decided to install a generator. It's one of those generators that hooks up to your house. And in a moment's notice, when the power goes out, man, that thing fires right up. And he's the only one that uh, has electricity on the whole block. And so I think what he did was he realized that the grandkids couldn't live for any length of time without their iPads. So if he had electricity, they would all be able to go over to his house and spend time with them. But the other day, I knew that he had gotten it installed. And uh, in fact, I had helped him put it on the pad there that they had poured for the generator. It was right there by his electrical box in his house. And, and so I had helped him do all this. And, and I was sitting down watching TV with my family the other night. And uh, the lights flickered in my house. I live right next door to my dad. And so I thought to myself, this is a great opportunity. In fact, what dad has been saying, his sales pitch to the rest of the family has been, yep, if the lights even flicker, my generator fires right back on. So as soon as the lights flickered, I thought to myself, well, there it goes. Dad's going to prove us all wrong. He's going to be the smart one. So I pick up my phone and I call my mom. I was like, so how did it work? How did it work? Was it cool that the power was off? Was that mean, was it? She was like, yeah, it's not plugged up yet. <laughs> Truth is, the reason that God saved us and sent us back into this world is because we are living in a very dark world. The Bible says, this is the condemnation that light came into the world, and men love darkness rather than they loved light. Our world in, is pictured in Scripture as being a place of darkness. And the Bible tells us that God has sent us back into this world that we might be lights for Him. In fact, the Bible says a city that is set upon a hill cannot be hid. You know who has set you? Jesus Christ has set you in this world to be a light shining for Him. And the Bible says, let, men so, uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You are a light for Jesus Christ. Oh, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to deal with the presence of evil, but light shines the brightest in the darkest of nights. And God has put us there to be a light for Him. Here's a question for you. How bright is your light shining? Sadly enough, I think when, when the Lord calls some of us and says, Hey, I put you in that place of darkness. And He says, How did it work? Did your light shine? And we say, Yeah, we weren't plugged in. Sadly enough, I think sometimes God has given us all the power that we need. He's given us the ability to live for Him and let our light so shine before the men that are around us that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. But when the flicker of this world happens, our lights fail to shine. God has not called us from the presence of evil. In fact, He's sent us back into this world that we might be light. But not only has He not removed us from the presence of evil, I want you to also see He has not removed us from the persuasion of evil. This week, I had a call on Friday 
of a young man in our church, a member of our church. He said, Brother Andrew, I was driving by the church and I saw some people putting out signs in our yard and taping signs to our light poles in our parking lot. He said, okay, well, what do they say? And he said, well, the, the messages are pretty controversial. I mean, they had like a real end-of-the-world tone to them, and, and they were pretty dark. I mean, it was a Christian ministry, if you want to call it that, but, but basically, uh, they were calling everybody in the world to repent. And the, the signs were plastered all over our yard. These people were taking pictures in our parking lot. I assumed to post it on their blog that they are really removing and ridding the world of darkness, I suppose. And so I was interested about this ministry. So when the young man sent me a picture of their sign, I logged onto their website. And I wanted to read what they believed. If they thought this was the right way to go about things, posting signage on people's private property, then I was interested in what they had to say. And this was in their um, what we believe statement. They say... We don't believe babies are born sinners. I disagree with that. The Bible says in Psalm 51, In sin did my mother conceive me. I was shapen in iniquity. So I believe all babies have a sin nature. But these folks' statement of belief said, We don't believe babies are born sinners, but that we live in a world with sin. And each individual chooses sin. And I I tend to agree with that. I think, though, that they are omitting the fact that we all have a root of sin. We inherit our sinful nature from our Father, whereby as sin entered into the world by one man, so death passed upon all. We inherit a root of our sin nature. But the fruit of our sin nature is that we each choose to engage in sinful activities on our own. But this is the part that struck me. We believe, once receiving the Holy Spirit, that one can live a life free from sin, even being able to never stumble like our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. This is what some might call the doctrine of sinless perfection. This idea that a person can be so righteous and be so holy that they would be totally removed from the persuasion and the pool of sin and their life, that they would be able to overcome at all moments in time the temptations that beset them. Is this true? Does the Bible teach that somebody could ever live such a righteous and holy and spirit-filled life that they would never fall into sin? The answer is unequivocally no. I think there's two reasons for it. Number one, I think it dismisses what the Word of God says. 1 John says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the Word of God says, If you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. In fact, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, this is an interesting passage. It's spoken to me quite a lot lately. It says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. So why is he writing? To encourage these saved individuals to sin not. Here's the next verse. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
The purpose of his letter is, I write these things unto you that you would not sin. But if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The Word of God does not teach the possibility of sinless perfection. Instead, it emphasizes the sufficiency of Christ in our imperfections. Where we are weak, He is strong. Where we are wrong, He is right. And praise the Lord this morning, if God views me, He does not look at me through the sinful garments that I can produce, but through the robes of righteousness which Christ Himself has placed upon me. Praise the Lord for that. Our justification is found in Christ. Our motivation is found in Jesus Christ. All that we are that ever pleases God is found through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to assume that we could ever get to a place where we could totally please God, this is absolutely unscriptural. In order to successfully navigate the pitfalls of this evil world, though, God has sent into our hearts the Spirit of God. It is that which persuades us. It is that which convicts us and motivates us to live for Him. In fact, Galatians chapter 5, later in our book that we're studying this morning, the Bible says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the, the, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary the one to the other. Every morning you wake up, you have the choice to whether to put Folgers in your cup. But the truth is, you have the choice to walk in the flesh or the spirit. Every single morning. And it is a choice. And I believe that's why the Bible tells us that we are to yield our members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Because it is a choice whether or not you yield to God or run headlong into sin. Somebody wrote in an article that I was reading in preparation for this message. I found this incredibly good and I wanted to read it to you. To convince ourselves that we have achieved sinlessness... We must either suffer from a radical overestimation of our moral performance or we must seriously underestimate the requirements of God's law. I thought that was incredibly powerful. To assume that we have achieved some level of holiness is to either say, I am a whole lot better than I am or God's law really doesn't expect that much of me at all. But the Bible teaches that We cannot live a sinless life apart from the filling and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. And every day we have the choice whether or not we walk in the Spirit and are filled with the Spirit. And it's that choice that that ultimately dictates whether we will be a victorious overcomer or a fledgling failure. The Word of God says that you cannot live a perfectly sinless life. In fact, the most authoritative passage on the entire uh, uh, concept is in Romans chapter 7 where the great Apostle Paul says, man, the things that I want to do, I I find in myself no power to do them. He says, I find within me a law warring in my members. He's saying, I want to do that which I, I know is right, but the will to do and how to perform it, I find not. He's struggling with this flesh versus spirit lifestyle. 
And I would suggest to you that if the Apostle Paul struggled with it, some of us might find struggles every now and again. But this dismisses the Word of God, but it not only dismisses the Word of God, it diminishes the work of Christ. The Bible teaches, makes no bones about it, that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfectly sinless life. He was tempted in all points and all manners like as we are. Hebrews chapter 4 says, and verse 15 says, yet without sin. He was perfect. Peter put it like this. There was no guile. That word means deceit found in his mouth. He never did anything wrong. He never did anything that was uh, off, the, off the right path. Jesus lived a sinless life. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. And though the Pharisees throughout His entire ministry sought to incriminate Him, though Pilate put Him on trial and sought to find a faithful witness against Him, none of them could. Do you know why? Because He never did anything wrong. In fact, Pilate's words was, This man hath done nothing wrong. That's the truth, is Jesus did live a sinless life. But to suggest that we as humans could do what only God could do is the height of pride and deception. I don't know how many of you are fans of the Olympics. Uh, My family used to make a pretty big ordeal about it. We'd come home, we'd watch it, and and so I, I, I'm interested in the results every year. And really, I'm only interested in the medal count. But you know how prideful we are as Americans. I mean, if we generally lead in the overall medal count. But if we're trailing in the gold, we're like, nope, America's got to win. We can't have that, you know. And, and so we're all about the Olympics. But uh, one thing that my mind and my eyes particularly drawn to is the, the swimming events. Y'all remember the success that Michael Phelps uh, experience while he was in the Olympics. But one thing that I think they did really well is when those divers uh, or when those swimmers jump into the pool, whether that's the freestyle or the backstroke or the butterfly, which is the girliest name I can imagine ever calling anything, the butterfly. But nonetheless, you have these guys out there in the water and they're swimming and they, uh, somewhere along the way, they decided to put a line out in front of these men and the women as well. And that line indicates... The world record. And, and, and even when Michael Phelps was swimming, you, you probably saw it. Sometimes he would be out in front of the world record line. And, and Michael Phelps in most events was winning. And so you weren't even cheering for him versus Russia or cheering for him versus Japan. You were cheering for him versus his own record. And you were watching him beat this line and you're like, you're going, go Michael Phelps, go, go. And the line represented the best time that had ever been swum. And swum? <laughs> it made sense up here. And then when it came out, I was like, no, come back. <laughs> it represented the best time that had ever been swim, swammy, swum. I don't know. And you're, you're cheering for him. You beat the world record. Beat the world record. But the reality is when we suggest that people could ever live a perfectly sinless life, we try to put ourselves in a swimming lane with that of Jesus Christ. And we watch his record of sinlessness jump out in front of us. And to somebody who thinks they could live this life, 
They're saying, yeah, I can, I can do what Jesus did. I can do what Jesus who fasted in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted of the devil. I can do what Jesus did who was constantly praying and constantly filled with the Spirit of God. And who was not only man, but fully God. I can do what he did. I was reading a pastor, uh, a pastor's writings as he dealt with somebody that he had come in contact with who came up to him, a 19-year-old that had been saved just a year. And he came up to, the 19-year-old came up to the pastor and said, Pastor, I've received my second blessing. And that's kind of what some of these folks would call this, the second blessing, be able to always overcome, never to fall into sin and temptation. He said, I've received my second blessing. And the pastor said, okay took him to Romans chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul talks about the struggle within himself. And this law warring in his members, how he wants to do that which is right, but he can't find the will to do it. And he takes it to them and the young man dismisses it and says, yeah, but that's talking about his uh, life before salvation. Well, the pastor says that can't be the case. And he explains to him how clearly the uh, emphasis and the application is to his current spiritual life. And he says, okay, well, apparently uh, the Apostle Paul just at this point in time had not received his second blessing yet. And the pastor was so taken back by what the young man had just said. The pastor said, do you mean to tell me? That you, a 19-year-old young man who has been saved for a year now, has received a spiritual blessing that the Apostle Paul had not yet received when he wrote the church in Rome? And the young man says, I guess. This doctrine, or false doctrine, if you will, is rooted in man's pride. You see, man is always drawn to a works salvation. You know why? Because it makes sense. We earn everything in this life. We, get the, we want the promotion, we've got to earn it. We want to court the woman, we've got to earn it. We, we want to be desirable and attractive to others, we've got to earn it. Everything else is, is based upon a meritocracy, if you will, a merits-based system. But the Bible says that our salvation did not come by the works of our flesh. For by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. We could not earn a, 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 a pleasing of God apart from being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And this idea of chasing sinless perfection is akin to the hamster on the exercise wheel. Running all the time and never getting anywhere. Now, there's two misconceptions. Number one, that God has removed us from the presence of evil, that God has removed us from the persuasion of evil. But here's the true meaning. God has removed us from the penalty of evil. Notice in verse number four, the Bible says, who gave himself for our sins. This is the the work of substitutionary atonement where Christ took our sins from us and placed upon us His righteousness. This is the work where Christ bore the weight of the sin's world on the cross of Calvary and punishment and the wrath of God was poured out upon Him so that anybody that places their trust in Christ would never have to face condemnation for their sins again. 
the Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Jesus Christ. And God had established at the beginning of time where his, what His Word was. He told Adam and Eve, If you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ye or thou shalt surely die. It's the first revelation of God's Word ever. God gave a command, Thou shalt surely die. The very moment that Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, death reigned upon them. Death became certain for them. And the Bible says when Jesus came to this earth, He became the ransom for our sin. Now certainly many of us have seen police shows and other things like that where uh, a serial killer or, or, or somebody takes somebody uh, and kidnaps them and places a ransom note there. And, and oftentimes the ransom note will say, well, if you'll give us $50,000 or a million dollars, then we'll give you your loved one back. The Bible teaches us that God's love desired forgiveness, but God's holiness demanded payment. And these two found harmony in the person of Jesus Christ. For Jesus paid the ransom that we could not afford. He lived the sinless life and and gave us that and substituted our works for His. He handed you a, a clean folder. More so than that, He handed you a folder of His obedience and righteousness. And the Bible teaches us that He became our ransom. And as He hung on the cruel cross of Calvary, He did what you could not do. He died the death you could not die. And you now have the reward you could have never earned. He has removed from us the penalty of sin. Christ's death was not merely a statement against evil or an expression of love, but a payment that satisfied, that satisfied God's holy demand. See, it wasn't that Jesus just died up there to spread His arms out and say, I love you this much. Oh, no doubt we see the picture of love in what Jesus Christ did. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, in, uh, that, that, uh, he, that He that believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. When Christ died on the cross, we see a great picture of love. But when Christ died on the cross, it was a satisfactory payment for the debt that you could not yourself pay. Christ delivered us from the penalty of sin. I want you to see, secondly, as the meaning of deliverance, it is this, that Christ has delivered us from the power of evil. Notice in verse number 4, "...who gave Himself for our sins that He might deliver us from this present evil world." Now, we already talked about how God's plan is not to remove you from the world. In fact, He sent us back into the world. But He has delivered us from the power, or you could say it this way, the domination of sin. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says this, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. The moment we get saved, it's like God takes off the blinders. And He says, your purpose in this life is to live for Me. And God is a good God, and He's a holy God, and He's a righteous God, and He's a loving God. And He commands that of His children, that we would be good and holy and righteous and loving. And so we should be like Him. But when we get saved, 
we, uh, we now have new desires and new passions that we might please Him. This passage is not teaching that we were removed from the presence of sin, but delivered from the power of sin. Romans 6 says it like this, For sin shall not have dominion over you. How many of you remember those Egyptian taskmasters that whipped and subjugated those uh, poor Israelites as they're out there working and building their pyramids and building their great cities. And those taskmasters were set over them with with whips just to uh, make hard their burden. The Bible teaches us that sin was our taskmaster. It dominated over us so that we could never please God. But when Christ saved us, He gave us a new master. In fact, the Bible says this, that uh, Romans chapter 6 again, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. God's plan for you, for the child of God, is that His power might be so experienced in your life that you would experience victory over the power of sin. God wants to replace powers. You know the problem with Dad's generator the other day? The generator had the capability to produce the power, but it didn't have the fuel to produce the power. The line had not been hooked up yet. This morning, if you find yourself living in a life of defeat, you find yourself very rarely experiencing any type of victory, maybe it's because you're not hooked up. Maybe it's because the Holy Spirit of God has not been sent into your heart so that you might have this power, so that you might have this new appetite to overcome sin in this world. Jude, chapter, or Jude verse 24 says this, Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling... God is able to keep you. God is able to stabilize you and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. You know, as I considered this topic of delivery, my mind kept going to postal services and and, uh, delivery services. And then I found, as I meditated on that thought, you know what I found? God saved us, stamped us, sealed us, and sent us. He he saved us, and He stamped upon us the blood of Jesus Christ, so that that there is no condemnation on our life. This is the condemnation that men love darkness rather than they love light, but there is no condemnation to them which are under the blood of Jesus Christ. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible says, And grieve not the Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. And He sealed us with His Holy Spirit. He put us in the mail and sent us into the world. And Jesus said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that you might keep them from evil. He sent us into the world that we might be lights for Him. But you know, as I, I thought about that, I thought that our delivery will not be accomplished until we have been returned to the sender. You see, all of these thoughts, the the, delivered from the presence of evil, delivered from the persuasion of evil, delivered from the penalty of evil, delivered from the, the power of evil, all of these thoughts will one day be accomplished. But it is not until we've been returned to the sender. One day Jesus Christ will 
part the eastern sky. And in a moment of time, His church and all those that are saved will be taken out of this world. We call that the rapture. In a moment of time, we'll just, we'll be here and then we won't. In fact, the word rapture speaks of a a taking away. As a strong man coming and robbing a house, the uh, the Bible says uh, Jesus would come as a thief in the night and steal us out of this whole world. Until that day comes, we are delivered from the power of evil. And we're delivered from the penalty of evil. But one day, we will be delivered from the presence of evil. See, because in heaven there is no sin. In fact, there's no sorrow, there's no suffering, there's no parting in heaven. And one day we will be uh, saved from the persuasion of evil. Right now, our flesh still lives it. We still live in our flesh and we still have desires and appetites of the flesh. But one day, our bodies will be made like His. And we don't fully understand all that that is. But our flesh will be done away with and we'll be given a new body like His. But it won't be until we've been returned to the sender. Friend, I have a question for you. This morning, have you experienced in your life victory over sin? Now, I don't mean to say that you could ever experience any type of perfection. In fact, the Bible never uses that term perfection in terms of our our life in sin. In fact, the word it uses is sanctification. Being set apart. Being made clean is the idea. Holy as He is holy. Have you experienced a life of victory? Maybe this morning there's somebody in this room that has never trusted Christ. And you've never taken the time to say, Lord, forgive me of my sins and come into my heart and save my soul. If that is you, then that means that you are destined for an eternity apart from God. There is only one person that brings us back into a relationship with God. The Bible says... There is uh, none other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. It is the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It would be a cry and shame this morning if I let all of you leave and let all of our guests leave and did not present the gospel truth, and that is this, that if you want to be saved, and if you want to spend eternity in heaven, if you want today to have returned to sender stamped on your heart and stamped on your life, then you must go through Jesus Christ. A lot of people try to put their works on a scale and say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I've done a lot of really good things. There is nothing like that that could ever please God. The Bible says our works are as filthy rags unto God. If you want to get returned to the sender, you must go through the blood of Jesus Christ.